Hey friends, this is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, SheCast episode 88. And I am on with actually a dear friend of mine, Anawa LaBelle. Um, she's pretty amazing. I would say that she is also part of the badass brigade in terms of just her mind and her insight and her um, her perspective on life. And so I've learned a lot by knowing her. I've only known her a short while, but it's been a good year that I've known her and I would love to welcome you to the podcast. I'm so glad that you were able to join. Thanks Chidima. I'm happy to be here. Uh, as Chidima said, my name is Anawa LaBelle and I'm a doctoral student at the University of Michigan and I study uh, all kinds of things, but generally um, relationships, how people interact and uh, positive psychology. So things like gratitude and pro-social behavior, and also I'm really interested in um, recovery from substance use disorder. That's awesome. So I remember um, maybe sometime last year, I heard Anawa speak, and she was talking about relationships and attachments, and it was really intriguing, and I was thinking, you know what, people can benefit from this information because most of us are in at least one relationship, you know, whether it's a relationship with a parent or a child or a spouse or partner, um, or even people that, you know, co colleagues um, or other students, if we're a student. So I would love to jump right in into how did you get started kind of studying that sort of stuff, attachments and relationships, and then what have you learned? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first time I heard about attachment, I was um, just taken with the theory. And I can remember specifically, I was in Emily Nagoski, who's like one of my heroes. She's a female sex researcher. She was at my undergrad institution at Smith College. She has now left to write books and is amazing. You should check her out. Um, but she was giving a lecture on uh, relationships, and she started talking about attachment and attachment systems and uh, how there's been a ton of research on what that looks like in, in terms of infant attachment, but it's also been translated to adult attachment, and, um, and I can explain a little bit about that in a minute. But she, when she was talking, I, my jaw was literally dropping because so much of my life and my history and my attempts at relationships in the past uh, just made sense. In in that moment, and it was um, it was one of the biggest aha moments that I've experienced. And you know, not long after my um, I started making connections between uh, recovery and people with substance use disorders and attachment, and getting interested in that um, combination. And uh, throughout the course of the time that I've been in academia and doing research, I've been able to um, sort of pull those different components into my line of work, which has been absolutely incredible. That's awesome. So you were, there was something that you said, Anawa, that you would come back to. You were talking about kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. So I'm, I'm going to work with the assumption that anyone listening to the podcast doesn't know anything about attachment. So I'll just give a very brief overview. Uh, and this is essentially the stuff that was jaw-dropping for me in that class. And it's the idea that uh, it started in the 50s and there was a researcher who was looking at the way that babies respond to their parents or a caretaker after they have been left, after they've been separated from them. And um, 
And what he found was that there were a couple of different types of responses, right? So the baby could either be comforted very easily and, um, you know, be loving again towards their parent, or they could be very angry and sort of um, fussy and pushing them away, or they could just not even have cared that the parent left, right? And then this was uh, something that they studied extensively through a, a research study that they called the strange situation. They set it up so that the baby and the mom would go in there and they would play together and the mom would leave and then they would observe the baby and then have her come back in. And, and so what they discovered is that essentially there's a couple of different, uh, what are called attachment styles, right? And it's, uh, it's a continuum, right? You're either low in one or high in the other and you could fall anywhere in between. But um, they categorized it as either having a secure attachment style, which is the child who, when the mom leaves or the father or the caretaker, it doesn't matter, um, they're upset. And when they come back, they're easily comforted and then they go back to playing, right? Uh, the other is uh, the child who just doesn't, doesn't mind that the caretaker has wandered off and is not around anymore. And, uh, or when they come back. And then the other is the, um, the anxious who's very distraught when left alone and when the parent or the caretaker comes back, they can't be consoled, right? And, um, and so this launched a, a huge uh, amount of research on the topic. And, and what they discovered is in, in the first two years of life, so from about nine months old till about two years old, there's a really important process that happens in the development of a baby's or a toddler's mind. And that basically sets up the, uh, um, your roadmap, so to speak, for social relationships throughout the course of your life. And in the time that has passed since then, they have done a lot of research and, and sort of watched young toddlers and followed up with them over five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And what they found is that they're relatively stable over time. And, and the way that it's developed is uh, largely based on whether or not the child's needs are met consistently and if they uh, know and feel that they're safe and secure. So the, the combination of those two things. So if as a, as a toddler between age like nine months and two years old, you're fed when you're hungry, your diaper is changed when it needs to be, uh, when you're distraught, you're consoled, right? Then you develop a secure relationship with the caretaker. And you can have more than one. Sure. It doesn't matter which parent or care, it's, as long as there's, there is one, right? Because what happens is then uh, you learn that you can rely on people and that um, people are going to be there for you when you need them, right? So that gets imprinted, so to speak. Uh, and I'm making, I'm generalizing this. Uh, it gets imprinted, and that's the working, that's the roadmap I was talking about for relationships later on in life. Sure. Right, and so I'm sitting in this, I'm sitting in this, um, this undergraduate uh, women's sexuality course, and she's explaining what this looks like and, and the traits uh, later on in life, right? So fast forward 20, 25 years, how do those show up in, in adults, right? And um, so secure people tend to, trust others, right, uh, immediately and work with the assumption that people are going to be there for them. They're comfortable being on their own. They're comfortable being intimate with other people. Um, and, uh, and that's about 60 to 65% of the population, right? And then there's another portion that are more avoidant. So these were the babies who didn't mind that the parent left or the caretaker left. 
Um, and those are the people who are overly independent and they are a little bit more fearful of intimacy. They tend to be single longer. They tend to date multiple partners. They're um, much more interested in non-monogamy, stuff like that. They're just, they try to keep people at a distance. They have sort of a wall up. Um, and then there's the people who are uh, anxious. So this, this is the inconsolable child when the, when the caretaker sure. came back. And, uh, and those are um, sort of working with the idea that uh, we don't know if needs are going to be met and we have, it's up to us to get them met, right? And so there's this, um, this sort of anxiety and um, a need for really close intimacy. So it's often described as um, being needy or clingy or um, very insecure and jealous and those sorts of things. And, and as I was sitting there, it really resonated with me because as a woman who has done a fair amount of work on myself and introspectively and has gone away to like meditation and yoga retreats to try sure. to, you know, figure out what some of these issues were and realizing like, this is what it is, right? Like, this is the type of stuff that I have dealt with. And, uh, and on top of that, I had found myself partnered with someone who had an avoidant attachment style. So I'm more of the like clingy need validation you know, want you around me all the time. And the other person was like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that pairing was causing me a lot of distress. And I, I um, just became really interested in, in, first of all, why I would, as someone who's more clingy and needs more um, from people, why would I would pair with someone who's more avoidant? And, and, and then the bigger question is, how can someone who has this sort of um, anxious uh, attachment style become more secure, right? So I became really interested in like shifting from one to the other, from like the outer edge of the, the unhealthy to the more healthy, right? That's a very brief overview. No, but so it sounds, yeah, it sounds like it is possible with work. So people should not necessarily fret that with work, someone can move from one of the other types like avoidant um to more secure is that correct is that what the research i know that with researchers listeners this is what you ask a researcher does the research <laughs> show this right <laughs> because they don't just talk out of their you know what they need to make sure that the research supports their response am i right on what <laughs> yes you are right yes and yes that's that's absolutely correct um, the research ha the research has shown that it's possible to shift more towards a secure uh, style, and um, and I just want to go back to one thing too. Like sometimes I hesitate to talk about attachment uh, in the, in that it seems like it's almost like putting responsibility for my problems on like my parents, right? Like so that I think is a little sure. problematic. But I do think that it's a very key, and I've I've read up on this. Uh, quite a bit. It's a very important period of time and sure. uh, systems, the brains or neurons or, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that happens in that time period. And so it makes sense. So I just don't, I don't want to encourage anyone to put blame on their caretakers, but to just think about what it means today and what they can do today. And so research has shown that you can shift. And the first step in shifting is edu educating yourself about it. Sure. So uh, it's knowledge, right? So if you know that that's something that, um, so let me shift it to me personally. So I know that I have a more anxious attachment style. And so what do I do 
to be more secure. Well, I understand how it shows up in my life. I understand situations that will trigger that insecurity. Uh, the people that I'm close to and have close intimate relationships are also aware of that and know that my immediate response sometimes to situations is like a more anxious and um, really insecure, uh, sometimes even physical reaction, but that I'm able to override it and uh, regulate my emotions and sort of uh, self, self-soothe, if you will. Um, and so I think another part of it is just choosing to have people who are secure in your life, right? Um, so making good decisions about the people that you're involved with. And, um, and I'm reading a really good book right now, actually, about attachment. It's called Attached, and it goes into detail about uh, exactly what I'm talking about and gives tips and, um, and explains why a lot of people who are more uh, insecure wind up with uh, avoidant people. And so, um, and I thought they make a really interesting point, which is that avoidant people are single longer and there's more avoidant people in the dating pool, particularly as people get older. And then the anxious people tend to, their relationships don't tend to work out as well as more secure people. So then they wind up in the dating pool too. So then, <laughs> and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the anxious person, uh, what they've known and the way that they develop, they just think that people aren't going to be available. So they're trying, uh, trying really hard to get the person to be available and then the avoidant person just expects that that's what's going to happen. So it's, it's a natural pairing, but it's unnatural. It's, 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 it's intriguing. That is interesting. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up the point about caretakers because the, you know, the first 24 months of a person's life is extremely important and pivotal and can, you know, without knowing it, they're at a, like a fork in the road. I mean, because it's foundational, right? And so it definitely does have an impact on the future. It doesn't mean that it has to paint the entire picture, but it does each of our experiences, even experiences we may not be aware of at this point or may not remember, still mm-hmm. had an influence on where we are today. And yet to your point, um, if someone is willing to do some work to be aware, you know, of Mm-hmm. who they are and what they are and what they bring to the table and what they'd like to do to change it, then there's, there's mm-hmm. definitely a promise there. So I wanted to um, kind of turn some of the attention away from attachments because I know that, sure. so we're recording friends in November. This won't be live until you hear it, which will be sometime in 2018. And this is typically a month that a lot of people remember gratitude and it's not to, and I I say that almost in jest because many people, myself included, um, I do operate to the best of my ability from a place of gratitude period um, all the time, because there's always something for which I'm, I can be grateful is the truth. And Mm -hmm. I know that we're going to start seeing on social media um, every November we see feeds of, Day one, I'm great. You know, I'm grateful for this, and so uh, I know that some of your research has also involved gratitude, and so I wanted mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about that because the notion of gratitude is personally very um, important to me, and it has definitely piqued my interest and in how when I have a negative perspective on something, when I do reflect on the things for which I'm grateful, 
my perspective does shift markedly. Um, it may not be happen in an instant. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it takes a little bit of time. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to hear a little bit more about what you've studied and what you have found as you've been studying gratitude. Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about that. Um, so my research uh, has been largely a chase after the things that I've seen in my life that have made sense or that I've connected with or that have made a big difference for me. And so uh, gratitude has been something that I have witnessed time and time again. It has the ability to take just about any situation and uh, turn it inside out, essentially, right? Like cognitively shift from a place of uh, negativity or lack or uh, problems and move it into uh, just completely reframing the situation. So no matter what it is or what's going on, it just, it just changes things. And so uh, I was actually doing research in a laboratory uh, attachment research with a woman, Paula Pietromonaco, at the University of Massachusetts. And we were studying um, hormones and, and how they respond to conflict and, and newlyweds and looking at attachment behaviors. And it was really interesting stuff. But she had a new graduate student who had just come from UNC and had been working with someone who was studying gratitude. And, and she mentioned this to me, uh, and it piqued my interest right away because I've had a gratitude practice for you know, many years. And, and so I started doing a little bit of research, and what I found was it was a, this was like five years ago, it was a newer field. People had just started investigating it, but they were finding incredible things, like significant findings of across the map uh, for all kinds of good stuff. So as someone interested in positive psychology, I'm very familiar with a lot of positive psychology interventions and ways to increase wellness and happiness. And gratitude was blowing the roof off of all of this stuff, right? And um, there's one study in particular, it's like one of the uh, main studies that helped a lot of people get interested in this is, um, and I'm, I'm blanking on a lot of the specifics, but I know that they had people keep a journal uh, I think a week or two, may have been six, don't quote me on this, um, I'll send you the link after, um, but they had people keep a journal, and what they found is the people that kept the, the gratitude journal, writing things that they were grateful about, they were higher on scores in happiness and well-being six months later, right, so we're looking at effects uh, from doing a very simple task, just listing the things that you're grateful for, not the next week, not the next month, but we're talking for as long as up to six months after having done that intervention, wow. which is unheard of, right? And so uh, if you do a Google search for gratitude and you, uh, you, you will be bombarded with books and talks and um, just anything and everything. And this is why, right? It just um, took the self-help and therapeutic community by storm and for good reason, right? Like it has the power to shift cognition into something uh, just into a more positive light. That's awesome. So how do you personally self-care? Because I cannot imagine that being a doctoral candidate is stress-free. <laughs> so what do you do to take care of your spirit and take care of your life and enjoy life? 
such a great question. Uh, I have had periods uh, when I have not done a good job of that. Sure. And, and it was actually through those periods that I learned the importance of needing to do that, right? And, and, and to take the gratitude, um, take the perspective of using gratitude to sort of reframe those experiences. It was an opportunity for me to see how important it was and, and how much I needed to grow in that area. And so I start each day with um, quiet time. I read out of a, a meditative book that is, um, you know, just positive psych principles. I also do one that is like, um, like it's more businessy, but it is essentially um, flooding myself with positivity in the morning. Right. Because I'll be honest, a lot of times when I wake up, I'm not feeling too positive. I'm feeling tired. I didn't get enough sleep. It's early. Right now it's still dark <laughs> when I wake up. And, uh, and so I, I feel like I need the boost. Right. And so I, um, I do a reading. Um, I sit quietly and, and meditate, usually try for 10 minutes, usually get in about three, if I'm being honest. And, um, and I, and right now I'm doing uh, something where I just kind of write out a paragraph or two of anything that comes to mind. It's, it's like a free write. It's, um, a, I guess it would be like a hybrid of, of positive affirmations and just in setting intention for the day um, and whatever is on the agenda. Uh, and that has worked really well for me for quite some time. Um, I've had to switch things up at, at times um, because sometimes things become stale. But I have been starting my day in, in that way or some variation of that for the last at least um, eight or nine years. Um, and so that's just a good way to, to set the day up. Um, in terms of self-care uh, for stress, I have made it a point to uh, just try to be as balanced as possible. So not just working all the time. I intentionally block off time to go and do things with friends. Uh, and that's really important because for me, social connection is when I'm reflecting on the things that bring me the most joy, it's when I'm connecting with people, right? So sometimes I get really busy. I'm working on my dissertation. I'm, uh, I have all these other responsibilities. I also am working now part-time. And so my, um, my first thought when I schedule some time is that I just want to be alone. I want like downtime, but that really doesn't, it, it doesn't help me. Right. It makes me feel a little more isolated if anything. Uh, and um, so it's just helpful for me to remember to schedule a social time with friends and um, keep that in balance. And I also have realized over the years through trial and error that it's really important for me to, exercise and, and and this sounds so cliche but exercise and making sure i'm eating uh healthy for the most part sure and that is like those are the secrets they're not i mean they're not really secrets but that's what works and if i'm not doing those things i i feel pretty off balance and um it, pretty quickly yeah and and um traveling for me is is a challenge because some of those things get out of whack and sure. um and i uh I have to work really hard to sort of keep those things consistent when I'm, when I'm on the go and traveling. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's funny, you mentioned that they're simple things and they're generally the things that, you know, your primary care provider will tell you about or a trainer will tell you about, or, you know, the stuff that we know in our minds, like, but 
the knowledge from the head to the heart is sometimes a long road. And so knowing it doesn't necessarily mean that I do it. So it is helpful to know, just like when people find out that I teach meditation and I um, teach yoga, you know, that I don't have it all figured out myself. Like I'm not always meditating. I'm not always practicing yoga. And to hear from you as a researcher that you know these things and some of these things you study and you've incorporated certain things, I think it just makes it easier for people to let themselves off the hook. Like find something that you, that works for you and what works for Anawa or what works for myself or someone else may not work for you, but finding a routine um, from what I hear from a lot of people that come on this podcast, it's like getting into a morning kind of a wind up routine and then a wind down routine and then filling the day with mm-hmm. things that support you, uh, whatever that looks like in between. Is there anything else last minute, Anawa, that you, any light you need to shed on us or things that you'd like to share um, before we kind of wrap up? Things that I'd like to share. Um, we've covered so much. We have covered a lot. So uh, this, is how, this is how I get people back on the show, Anima. I'll let you in on the secret. Yeah. <laughs> I ask people on the air when we're recording. I know listeners are going to be interested in hearing this, you know, so we'll probably want you to come back on at a later time with new information. So that's how, that's how we do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I would love to come back and talk more. I mean, I have a lot of, I didn't get to touch uh, any of the recovery stuff, but I certainly have a, a lot of interest and passion in that sort of work and uh, have made a lot of really interesting connections between attachment and predisposition to uh, addiction and uh, also gratitude and how gratitude is really helpful for people who have a more insecure attachment style. So yeah, I can, I can come back and awesome. we can talk more in detail about uh, one or both or you know, any of those things. I'm, I'm more than happy to, to give you some more time. I think it's important to, uh, for researchers and scientists to disseminate the information that you know, we're coming up with. We're creating science, essentially, but it gets put in journals and other academics read it. I think it's important to translate it to the general, uh, general audience. I agree. I agree. So... Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Anawa. I appreciate you sharing your insight um, with us and the work that you've done painstakingly. And I look forward to when we get to call you Dr. Anawa LaBelle. Um, so that's going to be exciting. Ooh. <laughs> right? That's going to be exciting. Yes, yes. We're not there yet. We're in the present yeah. moment, but it's coming. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely have you. I'll definitely have you back on to talk more about the recovery stuff because as a recovery advocate, I I love to talk about mm-hmm. substance use disorder and supporting people um, that are in recovery and also, you know, sharing light and information about people recovering, you know, because this is a huge group of people that is a part of society that they're doing great things, but no one knows about it. And no one knows some of the linkages, you know, as you were mentioning. So very good. We'll definitely have you back on. Um, All right. Yeah, I would love that. Awesome. Friends, I, I got you covered. She's coming back on. So there you go. All right. So I am going to pull up a couple of stories from humans of New York. 
and we'll see what what we've got here all right so it appears to be an older woman that says um I was the youngest in the family. I went to Israel first and the rest of the family was supposed to join me. Nobody made it. We sent letters to each other for the first few years. The last letter I got from Poland came in 1941. It was from my mother. It asked me to send food. Then the letters stopped. I knew that the Germans had occupied Poland and I heard rumors about the things that were happening. I never learned the specifics of what happened to my family. I never wanted to. And then she continues. There have been very good parts and very bad parts, but in the end, I love life. Every night before I sleep, I ask God for three more years so that I can make it to an even 100. Then I recite a blessing that my mother gave me when I left her in Poland. It was the last time I saw her. The blessing is much more powerful in Hebrew, but it says, wherever you go, may people always recognize that you have a beautiful heart. So sweet. I love that. All right. So friends, thank you so much for your support, your love and light, for subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with other people. I look forward to connecting with you. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I am in that place in me, there's only one of us. So I hope you have a gratitude-filled rest of your day. My name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Chicas, Episode 88. Namaste.